Hello and welcome to the Radical Reformers podcast. I'm Andrew Laird. This podcast is for people who want to understand what it really takes to make a positive impact in public services. It features leaders from councils, the NHS, central government, charities and social enterprises, as well as think tanks and social investors. This is about policy and the implementation of policy and the grit and determination it takes to run successful public services. It's not about politics. Politics does not feature at all and the discussions are all the better for it. It's also about the stories and personal journeys of the leaders I speak to, the challenges they faced and the lessons they've learned. Running and reforming public services is incredibly difficult and I'm very grateful to these inspiring leaders for taking the time to share with others. So before we get into it, I just want to take a second to thank my friends and colleagues at Mutual Ventures for supporting me to do this podcast. My day job at Mutual Ventures is about supporting public services to be better, more sustainable and more connected to communities. This means working with central government departments to help them build bridges between policy development and local implementation. It means working with councils to help them plan for the future. And it also means working with NHS trusts to help them find their place in the new health and care system. So I hope you enjoy this podcast and that you get as much from it as I have. And don't forget to subscribe on the website or follow us on LinkedIn or Twitter to make sure that you never miss a future episode. And you might even want to go back and listen to some of the older ones. This episode is all about food and farming. Sue Pritchard is the Chief Executive of the Food, Farming and Countryside Commission. The FFCC started life as a classic commission with a start and end point, but has evolved into a sustainable standalone charity focused on ensuring decision makers understand the issues facing farmers post-Brexit. Sue does a great job of explaining the current situation in the UK, including how self-sufficient we are as a nation, our reliance on ultra-processed food and global commoditization of food, which is limiting the sustainability and resilience of our food supply chain. This limits biodiversity and drives the climate crisis. Food is something most of us take for granted, but we really shouldn't. This is a crash course. The challenges facing the rural economy are substantial. Did you know that nearly half of all farmers earn less than £20,000 a year? The image of a rich farmer in the Range Rover does not represent the majority. Sue and I also discuss what a better future might look like with the idea of sustainable 15-minute communities playing a key role. On a lighter note, I think we get to the bottom of where Jeremy Clarkson got the idea for his Clarkson's Farm TV show. Despite having a lot of farmers on my mum's side of the family, I learned more from this conversation than I think I have from any other episode. I hope you enjoy it and learn from it as I did. Sue, a very warm welcome onto the podcast. Um, For anyone listening who maybe isn't uh, aware of who you are, could you just introduce yourself, please? I'm I'm Sue Pritchard, and I'm Chief Executive of the Food, Farming and Countryside Commission, and also a farmer, an organic farmer in Wales, on the borders of Wales. Fantastic. And before you joined the Food, Farming and Countryside Commission, what did you do? What's your background? So I'm I'm a very old lady, and so I've done quite a lot 
in the last um, 40 odd years. Um, I suppose the, the, my main work has been on leadership, organisation development and, uh, and systems change, whole systems change. So I've been probably working in that space for well over 30 years now in the public, private and not for profit sectors. Um, and uh, more recently, I developed an interest in leading and delivering major and complex projects, working with the government and private sector on those really big national, critical, politically sensitive projects that so often make the news and not in a good way. Um, HFS2 was one, for example. Um, but but for a lot of the time, um, I was uh, managing bringing up a family and like lots of women, I suppose, in the 90s, 80s, 90s, noughties, um, I ended up mainly working freelance and having a bit of a portfolio career. So I was a researcher, a consultant, I had a number of different visiting research fellowships, but also some public appointments. So I was a non-executive director and then a chair of a health board in Wales for 10 years. So I think I've, I've been incredibly lucky in my life to be able to blend together different kinds of work that really interest, really excite me, actually, in thinking about big and complex issues, testing out the practice of that and supporting other people in organisations to do the same thing. So that's what I was doing um, before I saw this job advertised. And, and to be to be honest, when I saw the job advertised at the RSA, I was a fellow of the RSA at that time. Um, it was my dream job, combining policy impact on yeah. really you know, difficult and intractable issues with food and farming futures, um, which I spent a lot of my, if you like, non-work time talking and thinking about for the last, gosh, 30 years. So you said brought together all my passion and all my interest and on, on, on a topic that I saw then and think even more now is probably one of the critical issues of our time, how we transformed, trans, transformed food and farming systems to a fairer, more sustainable way of going on. Fantastic. No, thank you very much for that. I will ask you a bit about the rural economy and just how how that works in a bit. But just for people who may not be aware, so what is the role of the FFCC in the national conversation because it's it's an independent charity i believe it's not it's not a government department it kind of has a name that sounds like it might be an arm's length body of government but it's independent absolutely yes it is it is independent so fscc was established really following the brexit vote when group a, a, a substantial and authoritative group of business and ngo leaders got together uh, in those first months, recognising that the vote was going to have huge implications for food, for farming, for environment, for uh, the whole of the policy context on those interrelated issues. And initially, uh, that group of people approached government to ask government to set up um, a government commission uh, on those on those questions. But um, government declined that um, invitation. Um, the group decided that was the wrong answer and yeah. uh, and formed the steering group um, and started to approach independent funders to explore the appetite for 
um, forming uh, a, a piece of work or funding a piece of work that would uh, highlight and start to tackle those you know, really quite challenging issues. And, you know, of course, they were completely right because we, you know, living through all of that right now. So um, Esme Fairbairn Foundation very generously agreed to fund an independent commission. And that was um, placed at the RSA. That was the host body. Okay. And then the commission um, appointed Syrian Cheshire as uh, as its chair. Uh, I was appointed um, as the director and we appointed a further 13 commissioners, really excellent folk who were drawn from um, the food sector, from farming, food businesses, hospitality, um, green groups, citizens groups, um, economists, really reflecting the uh, intersectionality, really, of the work that we wanted to do. And so FFCC was created um, to help shape uh, a new mandate for the food and farming sectors in the UK in the light of the Brexit vote, um, to bring new voices into that conversation, to really open up the conversation beyond, if you like, the, the sectoral experts or lobbyists, some might say, to bring citizens' voices into the conversation and also to recognise that as much of a crisis as Brexit was, perhaps still is, there are other huge issues um, on which um, food and farming have huge impact. The climate crisis, the nature crisis, the public health crisis, diet-related ill health is a huge issue. So it was our job to uh, face in to the poly crisis, uh, as we've now started to call it, and to the make perma, the, the perma poly crisis. The perma poly, yes, yeah, yeah. I mean, it, yes, yes, exactly. Um, and, and initially, we were um, we were set up for two years, um, and we reported in 2019. Uh, I, I can say a bit more about what we put in all of that report, but um, we. From going from a, a kind of short term task and finish commission, our funders very generously, very kindly um, invited us to continue our work to help put our recommendations into practice. And so we're on uh, on our fourth phase now, actually, of um, funding rounds. Really interesting. So I was going to ask you whether it was a time limited thing, like a lot of commissions are, whether it was a standing commission. So it's very interesting that. So it, it reflects quite a lot a commission which I'm involved in, which is the Poverty Strategy Commission. And that that is the second phase. The first phase was the Social Metrics Commission, which established how to measure poverty. And now I'm involved in the bit which is about implementing it. So it sounds like it's kind of gone through a similar sort of life cycle. Yeah, that that is a real gift, isn't it? To be able to do the work on um, what's needed and then have the opportunity to bring that about. I mean, I've, I've, you know, like I've been involved in lots of similar things over the years. And it is very rare that having written a report and made recommendations, you have the opportunity to kind of work with partners, work with colleagues to try and make change happen. And at the commission, commissioners, the team, we are incredibly um, mindful and indeed grateful for that opportunity that we get to say what's needed, but also really, you know, get our hands 
into the into yes. the week of it. Um, are you still associated with the RSA? It's not um, kind of housed there anymore, but that's no, where it no. was born, essentially. Yeah, yes. So, yes, yeah, so the RSA hosted the commission uh, for, for two and a half years. And then when we when our funders asked us to consider uh, branching out as an independent charity, able to just just focus on our work, we left the RSA. It also it also coincided with the start of COVID. So we, yeah. we left the RSA in April 2020. Um, and that was a point, of course, where everybody was leaving London. You know, ha- having a, a glamorous London base was probably less relevant. Um, yeah. but, the, but the main focus was, you know, at, at the RSA, we were, we were part of a, an organisation that had many different interests. Um, becoming an independent charity we were able to focus really relentlessly on the things that we know we need to do yeah. um, and um, and pursue our own um, mission and purpose independently. And, and that's that's worked really well for us. And, and are you a, a small, nimble organisation or what sort of structure are you? We are very small and nimble. I like to say we're a little bit ninja. Um, <laughs> we are... Um, so I've got I've got 24 human beings in my team. Right. Um, but we've but quite a few of those were part time or in job shares and flexibly. So um, we, it's probably I, I always need to check this. It's probably 17 or 18 whole time equivalents. OK, we're, so that's quite big. It's not bad. It's, it's yeah. not bad. Um, we've spread all around the UK. We've, we've not taken up um, a London based office. Uh, since since lockdown has um, eased eased off, um, we found that working around the UK really strengthens our reach. It keeps us um, it keeps us focused on the kind of material reality of the of the world that we want to try and reflect into policy. You know, r- the the countryside, um, rural issues, rural affairs. Um, food production, farming. So making sure we're all reasonably well connected to the thing that we talk about. I think it's one of the things that perhaps sets us apart from um some other some other, you know, London based think yeah. tanks who spend a lot of time thinking about things that happen over there in the countryside. Whereas we're out here bringing our insight, our perspective, our research, our intelligence back into the policy world of Westminster and Whitehall yeah. and, and business, of course. Yeah. No, I, I like the way you stress the number of human beings you've got. I feel like you're going to tell me that you've got some animals actively involved in the organisation I, as well. I do, I do have, a, I have a duck that lives in my office. <laughs> um, she, she's out at the moment. But, yeah, we, I think it's, it is, of course, essential. Fairly yeah. farmers in the team, actually, or yeah. people, people closely associated with that world, people who've got, yeah, actually, it, I think we do attract people who are researchers, uh, policy experts, but also activists in yeah. this world. You know, we we we're not we're not a think tank. Um, sometimes I wonder what what we really are because we do, we do think um, hard about things. Of course we do, but we tend to focus our attention on convening the real experts into the room, yes, bringing yes. together those experts in combinations that may not normally happen. So when we take a systems view, it means we can bring in 
you know, farming experts, with public health experts to think about the relationship between diet related health and what we grow and where we grow it and how we grow it. Right. So we try and make those connections with the real experts, but convening and facilitating different kinds of different kinds of conversations. Fantastic. So that's a really good overview of the work of the Commission. So I want to talk now about the rural economy and some of the topics that you engage with. So if we start with the question of the food we eat, you know, people do take food for granted in this country quite a lot. But can you describe how the supply chain works and how British grown food ends up on our plates? Well, that's a massive question. And uh, and of course, it depends which item of food we're talking about as well. Supply chain works very differently for different different food sectors. So we, we, we're about, it depends, depends how you count it and what you count, but we're about 57 to 60% self-sufficient in food in the UK. Um, and And of course, there are some things that we rely on, on our plates that we can't grow in the UK. So, um, you know, we will be importing from other parts of the world staples that just don't grow here. Um, I often say when, when we talk about food sovereignty and food security, I often remind people how important it is to keep good you know, fair and sustainable trading relationships going because I don't want to give up wine. I don't want to give up chocolate and I don't want to give up coffee. So if, yes. we're, if we're going to have all of the things that we've become used to having, then we need to um, make sure we have good, fair, progressive trading relationships with those countries who are more ecologically suited to grow some of the things now that we take for granted in global food systems. Um, so in the UK, about, you know, let's say, 60 odd percent our, um, of the food in our plate is is produced at home and of course exported as well. So we've got um, a strong export sector in the UK too. Supply chains can vary hugely depending on products. Um, so the 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 supply chain for for fruit, for veg, um, uh, for meat, for dairy. Is, is relatively more straightforward. You see, you, know, you very often retailers, supermarkets will let contracts with farmers and farmer groups and the, the veg that's grown in those fields makes its way to the supermarket and you'll see that on the shelf yeah. and certainly in some supermarkets you'll see the farmer's name labelled on it because yes. um, consumers like to see that. So I suppose that's that's what we kind of all expect or all imagine a supply chain to look like. But, of course, there's a lot, lot, lot more to it than that. Um, a lot of the food that we eat now in the UK um, is, frankly, junk food. We are yeah. uh, one. We have one of the we're one of the biggest consumers now of junk food, of ultra processed food in the world alongside well, the United States. So the proportion of the food on our plate that's actually ultra processed, highly processed, is higher than any other country other than, other than the United States. And, so that, that, and ultra processed means it's been kind of blended and mixed and all way beyond its natural state. Yeah, yes, absolutely. And there's um there is a very specific definition, a global definition developed by um, NOVA, the global body who defines these things. But essentially, I, I tend to say, if you're looking at the ingredients list 
on the back of the packet and uh, it looks more like a chemistry lesson than a food lesson. You're probably looking at ultra processed foods. And, you know, Tim Spector will say, if you're looking at ingredients that your grandmother wouldn't recognize, then you're probably looking at ultra processed foods. But that's a lot now of the of the of the of the food that we're eating. It's often very highly packaged as well as processed. So the um, the intervention, if you like, is not just in the ingredients, but all of the different packaging that mm. is needed to keep that food fresh and um, and transportable. Yeah. Um, so the the ingredients for that kind of food does come from the UK, but it can come from all over the world. The the UK is deeply um, enmeshed in a global agri-food system, which relies on um, the the import and export export of commodities um, of a smaller number of commodities. So wheat, rice, soy, sugar, um, barley, corn, maize, um, uh, meat, dairy. Uh, one, one of the issues that we've been tackling a lot in our work is the um, the impact of that kind of commodification and consolidation of the food system. So not only does it mean we have less variety on our plate and, and those ingredients are being used to make highly processed foods, but it's also having real implications for the genetic resilience of different commodities. So there's only there's only one variety of banana in the world. Did you know that? So all all the bananas we eat are one genetic variety. And if anything were to happen to that um, uh, that particular banana, we'd have no more bananas. It's also true of chickens. The 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 cheap poultry that we tend to see um, in processed foods, but also in takeaways and, and so on, comes from one genetic strain of chicken. And if that acquires um uh any kind of um disease or 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 virus that affects that that entire strain of chickens then um that that whole part of the food system is not at all resilient to any shocks that it might experience so what what we have now is um around the world is a highly consolidated, highly commodified, but also very financialized food system with fewer and fewer players, global players, players that very often your listeners will not have heard of. Um, commodity traders like um, uh, Archer Daniels, um, Bungay, Cargill, uh, Dreyfus, they control over 80 percent of the global food system from seed to what comes onto a plate. And most of us have never heard of them. What it means also is that the um, the economics of extracting value from the food system, making sure that all of the, if you like, all of those somewhat invisible actors can make some money out of getting food on our plate, transfers the true cost of that business model onto the environment, so yeah. the, the impact on nature, the impact on climate, but also the impact on our own health and well-being in a way that just adds cost in to to, well, to us as humans, to future generations, to the taxpayers. We try and clean that up. 
So, you know, a quick, you know, handy factoid I use quite often is the cost of diet related illness. Diet related illness, not not the broader um, definitions of um, chronic right. ill health, but diet related illness costs the NHS 12 billion pounds a year alone. Wow. And and that's and that's a cost we very clearly um, cannot afford. And that's not even thinking about the cost to our our sense of well-being, you know, our, our um, mental Sue, health. Sue, is this things like diabetes and obesity and uh, like what do we coronary just heart some, disease, yeah, coronary heart diseases? Yeah. Heart, yeah. So people will often say, in fact, Henry Dimbleby's, who who is the the government appointed food czar, who um, in fact, when we when we launched our report in 2019, it was Michael Gove and Henry Dimbleby who, who welcomed our report. And, and Henry had just been appointed as a food czar then and said, this is great. I'm going to build on this now in my recommendations to government. Well, sadly, COVID got in the way of that a little bit. But yeah. um, he wrote a really you know, excellent report uh, back in um 2021 2021 which is really covering in much more depth and detail lots of the things that i'm explaining to you now but he has just recently resigned from uh being the government's food czar and published if you like the um the airport book of his report called ravenous which i strongly commend and that and that describes the 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 health implications and the environment implications and the um and the equalities implications of the food system that we have at the moment, the global food yeah. system that we have at the moment. Yeah. Yes. No, really interesting, Sue. Thank you. And I think that gives a really good background as to the environment within which British farmers have to operate. So just thinking very specifically now about the UK situation, how would you describe the challenges the rural economy is facing? So, of course, Brexit did have um, significant implications for farming in leaving the European Union and therefore leaving the common agricultural policy, which shaped the investment that governments made into the farming sector. The common agricultural policy was really problematic. And so you know, many would say that it was one, perhaps the only silver lining of leaving the European Union to rethink how farmers are supported in terms of environmental goods and producing food. But that has created an enormous amount of uncertainty. So it's taken government a long time to work out how they will support the entire farming sector in um, transitioning away from the way that the common agricultural policy funded farming through to a more progressive way of supporting farming that supports farmers in delivering the public goods, uh, care for the environment, um, acting on the climate crisis, producing healthy food more sustainably. Uh, so, uh, so government has been doing that work. It's taken a long time. Farmers have been dealing with a lot of uncertainty for a very long time. And of course, the climate is also changing and yeah. nature is badly depleted. Farmers rely extensively, wholly, on nature um, and if you like what we often call the ecosystem services that nature provides um, and you know I hope it goes without saying to this audience that you know, the climate crisis will have is already yeah. having serious implications on um, on farming and farmers ability to 
grow food in the way that they have been used to. So far, what sort of examples, Sue? Sue, Sorry, apologies for interrupting. Just to make this real, what what are the uh, what are the climate change driven impacts on on farming? Yeah. So so farmers are experiencing drought more often and floods Mm. more often. So they were seeing extremes of weather in any one year much more often. So being able to to plant and harvest in the way that farmers have been used to in the past is becoming much more problematic. In thinking about the transition to more sustainable farming, farmers are being encouraged to take out synthetic inputs, synthetic chemicals like nitrogen and phosphates um, and uh, pesticides and herbicides. So nitrogen and phosphates are the things that are having serious impacts on the quality of river systems. So you'll have heard a lot about impacts on river quality or water quality as a result of agricultural activities. Um, And if you've been watching Wild Isles in the last few weeks, I strongly commend you to do that, as well as the famous sixth episode commissioned by RSPB, WWF and National Trust on, on how we act on the nature crisis we have yes. to reduce we have to reduce the chemicals we use which is damaging um biodiversity across the farm landscape so so farmers are having to completely rethink the way that they farm and some farmers are embracing that challenge brilliantly uh, some leading farmers are already acting on the climate and nature crisis um, changing the way they farm, moderating the way they farm. But it's it's an incredibly uncertain time. And that's before we start talking about the challenges to exports because of um, the, our, our changing relationship with Europe and the rest of the world. Some of the trade deals that this particular government is, has struck, is striking has real implications for farmers. So at the same time as we are saying to farmers, you need to farm with increasingly high standards, thinking about the climate, thinking about nature, thinking about public health and well-being. Some of the trade deals that this government is now doing is with countries whose um, whose standards for farming is not as high as ours and who allow practices um both environmentally and you know for animal welfare which we do not and that will undercut british farmers so it's it's an incredibly uncertain time for farmers and just putting a lot more pressure on farmers i mean what sort of um what what sort of income do farmers generally make in the in the uk i know it's variable but i think people maybe have in their mind that it's it's quite a rich profession yeah, I think that's, I think that's true. <laughs> a lot, lots of people um, assume that, um, you know, that that kind of standard image of a farmer, you know, whizzing around in a Range Rover and, you know, spending yes. weekends shooting and fishing is, is, is the life of most farmers. That's very, very far from the truth. I mean, of course, there are farmers who drive around in Range Rovers, but actually 40, well, nearly half of UK farmers earn less than £20,000 a year. Wow. So farming farming can be incredibly precarious and uncertain and um and challenging. Uh if 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 farmers were being paid the hours they put in, um our food would cost us a lot, a lot more. 
No such thing as minimum wage for farmers. No, absolutely not. So uh, just thinking then about these challenges and your role, so what action do you take to raise important farming and countryside issues? So one of the things that we've really concentrated on doing from the very, very start is um, going out and um, listening to, hearing from people who are working on farms in communities very far from London, very far from Whitehall and Westminster, um, listening to their concerns, their aspirations, and translating that back into 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 policy speak. So I think we've we've done a reasonably decent job at uh, reflecting and then sharing the voices, and and they are diverse voices to be candid. You know, farming is a you know it, it's not if you like um, ethnically diverse. Farming is extraordinarily white as a, as a business, but in terms of um, the nature of the business, the nature of the sectors, the profitabilities of the sector, the lowlands, the uplands farmers, it is actually a, you know, a really diverse sector economically and socially. We've been able to share the, uh, those, the plurality of those views with Westminster and Whitehall and, um, make sure that people's lived experience and real perspectives is, is, um, being heard more effectively amongst those who make policy. Now, it, it's, you know, it remains really difficult. And the other thing that we've perhaps been able to do reasonably well is tell the story of food and farming for, for citizens. So, so many citizens have relatively limited insight about where their food comes from and how it gets to their plate um, and how policy uh, you know, big policy decisions, as well as individual choices, shape not just the food we eat, but the way that that food impacts on the environment, impacts on climate, impacts on broader issues of health and well-being. And I think that that's that's a much more common story these days than it was a few years ago. We hear we hear much more yeah. in uh, in the press and on television uh, about. The relationship between food farming, health and well-being, climate, nature, and a, and a more equitable, a more fair, more sustainable future. Yeah, and just with television in mind, then there's uh, obviously quite a few farming-based TV programs at the minute, such as our, our Yorkshire Farm and Clarkson's Farm is a really popular one at the minute. Is this giving people an, a better idea of the challenges of? farming and the challenges that the countryside is facing and does this help your work that's a really good question so back back in 2019 um i was invited to join a meeting in in the cotswolds after we'd published our report um a colleague said please come and and talk about your report to my neighbours. I think they'll be really interested. My farmer neighbours will be really interested in your report. And we would like to understand collectively what we can do with that. Um, And so that that was a lovely invitation. And off off I went. Um, What I hadn't quite understood, that my colleagues' neighbours were um, were rather a lot of celebrity farmers in, right. in those upper Cotswolds. And um, and Jeremy Clarkson was in the room with, with right. and, and with lots of others. 
Um, and we had a really, really good conversation about the future of farming, the challenges for farming and the future of farming. But in the break, Jeremy um, came up to me and said, this is all very well, but you've really got to find a way of talking about this that that can connect properly with the people who, you know, watch my programmes. You know, the people who yeah. watch Top Deer are not really going to be reading your report, are they? So you really need to get out there and and uh, speak to people who watch my programs. And I said, I think you should do it, Jeremy. You do it. You do it then. So, so I'm it, it was your idea. <laughs> it, it was your idea. Well, I'm, 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 I'm claiming it. I suspect. I suspect that given how long it takes to get programs into production, he already very much had that in mind. But that is my anecdote. And I am claiming personal responsibility for getting Jeremy Clarkson on the telly. So, of course, for lots of people, Jeremy Clarkson can be a bit Marmite. Some people love him and some people do not. But what I really liked about the work that he did on that programme is that he brought really complex issues into into everybody's living rooms. You know, lots of people really enjoyed watching um you know his problems but whilst it was quite funny in some places it was also incredibly serious in how it, it was. brought farmers issues to the fore yeah no i i completely agree and does that kind of i mean this it maybe reveals my kind of cynical um view of some politicians does the fact that celebrities are getting interested in this type of thing elevate it and make it easier to start conversations in westminster I mean, for some it does, yes, with, with, without a doubt. Um, but actually, the more people that are involved in these conversations, the better. One, one of our big pieces of work this year is going to be a programme of citizen engagement right around the country because we, we, we spend a lot of time in communities, in poor communities, in rural communities, in urban communities, talking about food and food issues. And we know in those conversations that people want a fairer and more sustainable food system. Mm. We're often told people only care about cheap food. They don't care about the climate and nature crisis. And if they really wanted something different, they'd be choosing it in their baskets. But that is not the case. And when we talk to folk, particularly poor people, actually, in vulnerable communities, they are outraged when they understand that their poverty is often used as an excuse to shore up a really dysfunctional and damaging food system because they want what we all want, which is healthy food, sustainably produced, affordable for them and their families. It's not going to cost us the earth. Yeah. And Sue, just thinking to the future now, because I want to kind of end on a positive note, if you like. So what is your vision for the countryside and farming more generally in this country? You know, we obviously... You know, I'm just thinking about wider policy issues. We obviously need more housing, but we also need local food supply chains as well. And, you know, can this all work together? What would you like to see in terms of farming in the next, I don't know, 10 to 15 years? It's a, it's a really good question because so much of this conversation revolves around what we're going to have to give up, how we can't yeah. have anything that we've had in the past and that somehow we're going to have to scale down our consumption to to protect the planet for future generations and of course that is true but what i see with you know working with people in communities around the country are the prospects for communities in which we can all flourish where healthy food is produced more sustainably and closer to home where farmers 
uh, in our communities can produce more of the really healthy food that we need and it comes straight to our plates where food becomes something joyous where we can you know collect together and and have food as part of the you know the joy and celebration of life that it is you know already so much part of but also in that context where you know where where communities where we, where we do have more affordable housing more affordable housing in rural communities particularly where uh, you know the 15 minute city the 15 minute community i think is very yeah. evocative particularly when we think about food and farming futures, because it's very possible to have a lovely donut around those 15 minutes community, 15 minute communities of sustainable food production, growing yeah. more healthy food closer to people, closer to communities um, in which we can all thrive and we can spend more money on things like care and culture and craft and creativity. All of the things that we currently massively undervalue if yes. we're not over consuming and spending money on the kinds of things that have really damaged um, the planet that we live on. Yes. So your vision is very much about retaining and increasing even that local supply chain of food and the importance of that. Absolutely. Yes, absolutely. Valuing the local, not not at the expense of progressive trade. I think, as, as I said earlier, we do need to support farmers and producers in other countries who are ecologically suited to produce more of the other things that we like to have and vice versa. So as a very last question, um, and this is something I ask all all podcast guests, what, what bit of advice would you give to someone working in the public sector or a charity or social enterprise or a campaigning organisation who wants to make an impact in the way that you have? The thing that I think um, I really value and appreciate is actually the ability to walk away okay it's really, it's really important to be passionate and committed about the work that we do and to be pragmatic as well in how we make change happen but the thing that i have found most liberating and i see this in my commissioners too who are at that senior point in their lives where they have done as much as they want and are now really focused on making a difference. When you can walk away from your job or your work, where you do not feel so um, tied into the job or the career that it becomes more difficult to speak truth to power, to say or do some of the more difficult things, that is incredibly liberating. And so the thing that I value, particularly about being able to do this work at my time of life, uh, is the ability to do what I want to do, to say what I want to say, to do it in a, a respectful and pragmatic way, but know that I'm not waiting for you know the, the next promotion, or I'm not worried about yeah. you know about being in the kind of the the kind of alpha team anymore. All of that's passed. Being able to do what I want to do and still walk away if it's the right thing to do is an incredibly liberating, liberating position to be in. I, I think that's amazing advice. And it's almost like a goal for for careers, because a lot of people listening won't won't be in a position where they'll feel that that's a possibility at the minute. But I think what you're saying is that if you can build towards being in that position where you're comfortable in your own skin, you're comfortable in life and you, you can 
act with complete integrity and complete independence that that is a wonderful place to be and I know that not everybody listening will feel that they're able to do that but it's a really interesting perspective and one I haven't heard before so I really appreciate that it's 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 psychological liberation I think rather than liberation and yes I we we could talk a lot more about that, but maybe that's for for another day. Um, for that's another easy. for another time, Sue. Sue, thank you so much for your time. I've really enjoyed the conversation, and I think more than a lot of the conversations that I've had on on this podcast, where I'm already quite familiar with the subject, I've learned a lot as well. So I really appreciate that. Thank you. Thank you. It's been a pleasure to talk to you. Well, I think the only thing that would have made that better is if we'd had the chance to meet the duck that shares Sue's office. I find that conversation really eye-opening. There were a range of things. The uh, the way Sue explained how food is being commoditized at a global scale, these huge organizations that I've certainly never heard of seem to be controlling a lot of what lands on our plates. Um, I think we need to be aware of that. Um, it was also interesting just to think about just exactly how self-sufficient we are. So I think Sue said about 60% of the food we eat is produced within the UK. But I think I probably thought it was higher than that. But then when you do think of things like like coffee and wine and um, different cheeses and things, I mean, I guess that I guess that does make sense. Um, also, just that point about how with the exception of the United States of America, we eat more ultra-processed food than any other nation. Surely we can do better than that. This food is not only not great for you, but it requires a lot of packaging because it's harder to keep fresh. I, I, I think we, we can do a lot better than this. I think it's also really interesting how the Food Farming and Countryside Commission started as a traditional commission with a purpose and probably a start date and an anticipated end date. But it did so well and had support that it became a standalone independent sustainable charity. And I think that's really interesting and just goes to show how important the work that Sue and the other people who are working and supporting the FFCC are doing, how important that work is. I really like the idea of 15 minute neighborhoods, 15 minute communities, We've done some work at Mutual Ventures with different councils who want to implement some of these principles around that. Um, I haven't heard it expressed in the way that you would have the neighbourhood and then a donut around it where you could have the production of your food in that donut as well. So I thought that was really interesting and could work really well for some communities, particularly in rural areas or on the outskirts of the towns and cities around the UK. The final point I want to make is about Sue's career path. So I think the big lesson here is that you spend your career building up the skills, getting the experience, building up your network of contacts so that when your dream job comes along, you're ready for it. And that's clearly what's happened in Sue's case. Um, She spent a career building up skills in solving complex problems. She already had that passion for farming. As she said at the start, she is a farmer herself. And when this opportunity came along, she was the perfect person for it. And it now, for her, really came across that she feels like she's found her calling in terms of her career. And I think that's really fascinating and is a lesson to all of us that we need to be open to opportunity.
at all times. So that's everything for this episode. Thank you for your time. And don't forget to follow us wherever you get your podcasts so you never miss a future episode. And you might even want to go back and listen to some of the great episodes that have come before. 